Isn't it great to be a Christian? And as much it is also wonderful and a privilege to be a part of this great congregation of people, to be able to be gathered to, to worship, as we mentioned earlier, to sing these songs together to commemorate the death of our Savior, and we pray that what we have to say uh, will be of benefit, uh, as much benefit as the other aspects of our worship have been uh, this morning. I didn't mention earlier, and uh, I meant to, and that is a reminder that ladies' class has uh, restarted on Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock, and so we encourage you to be there. I know that the teacher has a tremendous amount of wisdom and knowledge. She raised me, so don't hold that against her and come anyway and learn from her, but um, I know that you will be benefited from being a part of it. I don't know how many more weeks. It's not a long, long time that it'll be running until we're done, maybe four or five more weeks, four more weeks um, to finish out this year. So uh, that, t- that will quickly be disappearing again until the, the spring. So uh, avail yourself of that and uh, be a part of that ladies' class Tuesday morning at 10. If you have children, uh, babysitting is provided, and so you can come and be a part uh, of that. A writer has suggested that cells within your body are dying and degrading. An employee or co-worker is making a mistake. The floor is getting dusty, and the heat from your coffee is spreading out. If you zoom out a little bit further, you'll find that businesses are failing and crimes and revolutions are occurring and relationships are ending. If you zoom out even further, you'll see that the entire universe is marching toward a collapse. Now, I know that's a doomsday uh, approach, but the second law of thermodynamics teaches us that our universe is winding down, that it is not progressing toward a utopia, that it's not moving toward a perfection, but rather it is falling apart, literally, if you would think of it this way, at at the seams. Now, take into account the fact that as Christians, we believe in the biblical account of the creation of man, the relationship that God had with him in the garden, and the fall of man. We can easily see why that's the case, can't we? See, when God created the world, he saw that it was good. And it was perfect and everything was right. And he actually put that garden there and gave man the opportunity to eat of the tree of life and to live forever. But then, when man fell, came death and chaos and disorder. In fact, there's not a relationship that we have in this life. There's not a a connection that we have on this earth that isn't impacted negatively by the fall of man. See, the fact that you and I are a people here together this morning from all backgrounds and all walks of life, having been raised in different parts of the country and having different interests in, in who we are and, and what we do and what, and what draws us in, in a secular sense together, the only reason we're made up of people is because we're fallen, or at least we were outside of Christ, that we were in need of a Savior, that we all stood condemned to the foot of the cross because of our, our guilt and our, our sin, the magnitude of it. And, and, and on the heels of that, Jesus came and redeemed us and made us again whole but we live in a world that's impacted and affected by that fall. Marriage is one of those relationships that's impacted. Maybe the most impacted relationship we have outside of our relationship with the Lord. And yet, for most of this month, as we've been considering these thoughts from the Song of Solomon relative to marriage, it's been happily ever after, hasn't it been? It's been the ideal perfection the, 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 the concept that if you'll just do these three or four things, if, if you'll just follow this particular passage, that everything in marriage will be okay. Now, 
I didn't intend to present my lesson that way. Brendan didn't intend to present his lesson that way. But we generally don't deal with the ugly side, the, 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 the fallen side of, of, of life in that sense in, in marriage relationships. We, we tend to only focus on what will fix it quickly. At least that's the presentation, that's the thought that comes to mind. See, idealism and paradise have undergirded our lessons thus far. We've seen what perfect affection, perfect communication, and perfect attention looks like. Friends, we live, as one writer put it, east of Eden. I love the phrase and the thought. We live outside of that utopian garden scene where where perfect fellowship is still had and and perfect relationships are still found. We live in a time where, if, as one, one writer suggested, you walk and you can hear the thorns crushing underneath your feet. We live there. We get married there. And we interact there. And so as we consider our text this morning, as we look at this, this idea of, of living east of Eden and, and, and considering our, our thoughts, we need to keep in mind that marriages are not perfect. In fact, even if we were to do everything discussed three weeks ago, last week, this week, our marriages are still going to struggle. Our relationships are still not going to be complete. It's not going to be a, a, a happily ever after to the point where there's no sadness and no sorrow and no difficulty and no separation and no problem. It's just not the world that we live in. Now, we long for a day, don't we, when that's going to be the case? When, when there, those things will be done away and, and, and all of the impact of, the, of that, that, that sin in the garden and the subsequent sin of our own uh, person will, will be done away and, and, and rectified, but that's not now. So we live in that time. It's in this text, and if you want to open your Bibles, it's Song of Solomon chapter 5. I tried to stay away from scripture readings from lengthy sections of the Song of Solomon for obvious reasons this month. And so we read, we've read from other texts of scripture that deal with um, marriage and, and family, and hopefully those have been at least enough to, 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 to whet our appetite for what we would be discussing. Now, unless you are, are worried, because what you have in, in this chapter is you have, the, and we'll get to it in a moment, sort of the layout, but you have this, this first notable marital spat, at least from my opinion, between Solomon and, and his bride. Now, it's going to be, end up being a very difficult and disastrous situation before our text ends, we're not going to study all of it, so just so we can finish the picture, chapter 6 and verse 3 suggest everything's okay at the end of the day, okay? Everything's all right. Restor- restoration's been made. Restitution's been made. They're back together. Everything's okay. So don't, it's not a, 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 a dead-end story this morning. But we're not going to get all the way there, so I needed to share that with you before. Now, now in this text, what I think it allows us the opportunity to do is to evaluate our own marriage, to evaluate what we want out of it. If we're not married, when we get married, what do we want from it? Now, I know that if we were to put the two options before you this morning, do you want a dream marriage or do you want a nightmare marriage? I would dare say that most of us would say a dream marriage, right? In fact, I hope that we would. If we were planning on entering into marriage, that should be our desire and that should be our focus. But what I think we find in this text is the opportunity to, to see some principles that must be applied in marriage, some things we must remember or else we're choosing the nightmare whether we realize it or not. And there's a reason why, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment why I chose this title 
Let's, let's give some attention just to the, the, the text itself in general before we look at the, the details of it. Uh, this text seems to be a, either one of two things, either a dream sequence. In fact, if you look at verse 2, the Bible says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. That leads some people to actually believe that this is a dream that the Shulamite had of separation, of difficulty, of, of, of some type of, of friction between her and her husband. Or more than likely what it is, and that's why I dream or nightmare based on the, the language of the text. It's also very possible, and here's what I, I believe about these verses, is that it is a poetic rendering of a, a common occurrence in marriage that the small things lead to something disastrous. And, and, and whether this actually happened in their marriage or it's a picture of what does happen in marriage, it presents this nightmare scenario. It turns from a dream in the beginning to a nightmare in the end. And so I think that's how we need to approach uh, these verses as we consider them uh, this morning. Um, it's also, we need to keep in mind that this text is a case of double entendre. That is, it is a case where there are two meanings, possible meanings for the text. One of those meanings is far more risque than the other. Okay? Probably so that we might be able to study it and understand it and appreciate the general point. It has a, a very surface level understanding and meaning. And then when it comes to the intimate, private relationship of husband and wife, it has a different meaning or a, a deeper meaning. So we're allowed in our text, in our context, we have to look at the, at the surface meaning and the general meaning without getting into the details of the other. And I'm thankful for that. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't be discussing it in here this morning. But in this text, in this situation, it is something that, that, that seems to be common and routine in every marriage, yet it results in separation, resentment, and loneliness. I think it's fair to say that the things that make our marriages nightmares instead of dreams are not usually the big things. At least they don't start that way. They don't originate that way. It's not that everything's going fine, everything's okay, there are no problems. Then one day, it's a nightmare to live in. There are some things along the way, and I think this text points out some of those things along the way that will help us to, to right the ship before maybe it gets uh, that bad. So here's what, here's what happens in the text. Look beginning in verse 2. I was awake when my heart was, or I was asleep when my heart was awake, my beloved a voice, my beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, my, my head is drenched with dew and my locks with the damp of the night. Okay, Solomon has come home late. It's, it's as some writers would suggest, past the midnight hour. In fact, her response in verse 3 is, I've taken off my dress, how can I put it on again? I've washed my feet, how can I get them dirty again? Do you see the exchange here? Solomon, for whatever reason, has delayed in returning home. For whatever reason, he, he, has, he has not been there. There's suggestion that there was a prearrangement made, that, that they would be together, that, that they would celebrate his coming home from work that day or maybe a long trip that he had been on, and that he delayed in returning. And while he delayed in returning, she got frustrated and locked the door. That's what seems to have happened. And he, he comes expecting to, to just turn the doorknob and come in, and he hits the doorknob, and it's, it's locked. And so he begins to appeal to her. We'll talk about these terms in a moment. Oh, open the door for me. I, I'm home. I, I've been gone for a long time. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm either, either I'm drenched with the, the, the humidity of the, the air of our culture and climate or 
I've been working so hard as king that, that I've, I've worn myself out. Just let me in. I need to get in. And she just gives him these flimsy excuses that suggest that he could just sleep outside. That would be okay with her because she's frustrated. Text goes on to say that, that he puts his hand through the door and he tries himself to open the latch to, to get in. And maybe in his frustration, although we're not told this, he just leaves it and he walks away. Now the Bible's going to reveal that she regretted that in verse 6. In fact, she opened to her beloved, but my beloved had turned away and he had gone and my heart went out as he spoke and I searched for him and I did not find him. I called for him and he did not answer me. Quickly she regrets her decision. She gets up to let him in. She opens the door. Solomon's gone. And now she feels worse than she did when she told him he couldn't come in. And so, again, this is why I believe it's poetic in, in nature. She goes out to find him and the watchmen in the street beat her and berate her for being out and chasing her husband into the night. And then the text ends in verse 8 when she tells her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, if you see him, tell him how lovesick I am. Tell him I regret what I've done and I long for him to come home. I want to make this right. Now, now again, we, we find the text later where restitution is made. The marriage is okay. But that, that short exchange, I believe this morning that we can find five principles, five things to remember that will help to keep our marriages, either the one that we're in now or if we're not married, the one that we'll be in later from, from being a nightmare. Number one, forgot had a PowerPoint. Number one, some marriages predate or some problems predate marriage. Some problems predate marriage. We have to remember that. See, in the text, and we've just read it, she, she longed to find him. She couldn't find him. She searched for him. You know, this isn't the first time that's happened in the book. If you follow the flow of the book, for me, chapters 1 through 3, 5 is courtship. He's pursuing her. She's pursuing him. And then they get married in the middle of chapter 3. They consummate that marriage in the honeymoon in chapter 4, which leads to the first major conflict after the honeymoon's over. In chapter 5, it, it follows and flows through normal life, the way most relationships work. The first time this happens, though, and I'll, I'll encourage you to go back when you have a chance and read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When you read that text, you're going to find that there was a time that she awoke from her, from her sleep and, and, and she sought for her, for her fiancé and she couldn't find him. And she was distraught. And it, almost the same words are used in, in 3 1 that are used in 5 6. Some problems, some things that we struggle with, some communication issues, some re relationship issues, some personality issues, they predate the marriage relationship. But as they say, love is blind. And so, as we're dating and getting to know someone, don't we do our best to hide the things that we might think they think are strange or weird or off-putting and sometimes we can manage to actually hide some of those things all the way till marriage and then we look around and we're, well I don't know who I married you know he never acted like this before she never did this before unless love is blind and I just didn't see those things happening there are some problems that our marriages face that predate our marriage they go back before that because what marriage doesn't do is marriage doesn't make us perfect people doesn't fix our flaws. If, if he has a temper when you're dating, he'll have a temper when you get married. 
If she's dishonest when you're dating, she'll be dishonest when you get married, unless she repents, unless he changes. But marriage doesn't change that. We, we get that, right? We see that. We realize that in our world. But yet some people believe and live as if, well, we'll just get married. It'll fix all these problems. I would suggest to you that her loneliness on this night in chapter 5 was actually made more intense by being married. But it didn't solve the problems in chapter 3. It was just as real, in fact, more real now because that marriage had been consummated than it was before. Spending habits, work ethic, genuine compassion are not bolstered by a ring and a ceremony. So if you're not married, my encouragement would be search and look and pray to first be the person that someone else would marry and then find the person that someone else would marry because marriages struggle every day with problems that predate the marriage relationship. So we just have to remember that. Number two, we also see from this text that some problems are not solved with words. Some problems are not solved with words. We see that as Solomon approaches her and he finds the door locked and he does, I believe, what he has done in the past. He sweet talks her. Did you notice the, the, the pouring on of compliments? Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. It's not just one address. It's not just two. It's four. And all four of those words indicate something different about his feelings for her and their relationship. To say that she is his sister would seem to indicate that you're not just a, a temporary person in my life. Now, you look down the, the, the hallways of time in Solomon's life, and she probably was just someone temporary in his life. But at this point in time, he doesn't feel that way. You're, you're someone who's family. You're my, you're my sister. I've committed to you like a family member. Then he, then he says, my darling. It's used nine times in the book. Sometimes it's, it's, it's translated, my love. He says, I, I delight in you. You have my heart. Then he says, you're my dove. This seems to be his pet name for her. One that, that perhaps is, is unique to her features physically, the way he feels about her internally. It's, it's gentle and pure. Then he sums it up with probably the most romantic of them all, my perfect one. There's no flaw in you. The first time he told her this was in response to her saying, I don't want anyone to look at me because I'm dark and, 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 and the, the, the sun has, has tanned me and no one wants to see me. And he says, you're perfect. This, this, this words. Now remember, words were one of Solomon's strengths, weren't they? All the Proverbs that he wrote, all the songs that he penned. We've already referenced in this, in this study, 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 32, that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Words were his thing. And to give him credit, he tried to use what worked in the past and what he was good at. The problem was on this day and on this night, she wasn't having it. Words weren't enough. In this moment, she needed more than that. Now, I know that that perhaps men might say, well, that's frustrating because if it worked before, it should work now. I'm trying to do my best. Well, Peter tells us to dwell with our wives according to understanding, according to knowledge, to learn them. And not every situation can be handled the same. 
There was a study done and a work done by, by a husband and wife, the last name of Turnbull, and they came up with, with four things that a, that a woman needs, four things that a man needs. We'll talk about those four that a man needs in a moment. But if a woman needs these four, they would say, she needs talk. Okay, She needs to hear words. She needs to be able to talk, but she needs to hear him talk. She needs to know her, opinion, her opinions are valued, but that's not the only thing that she needs. She needs time. She needs to know that, that I can change my schedule and, and, and get home at a decent time. You see, if this is work-related, Aiken suggests that work won over wife this night, that responsibility won over, won over romance, and she didn't like that. And maybe that was the one this night that was forsaken, the time, or at least the, the understanding that time was hers. She needs tenderness. That is she needs to know that you want to protect her and to take care of her. And not always or necessarily in a monetary way or a, 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 a way of brutality and defending her honor for someone who might be uh, physically in a physical altercation, but the tender just know that you protect her spiritually and emotionally. And then she needs touch. That is daily, regular assurance with a hug or a pat on the back, holding of her hand. Those are the four things. Now, I don't know which of those that, that she needed on this night, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the talk because that's what he gave her. You know, sometimes we'll say, well, I said I was sorry. I said I love you. I said it's no big deal. Do you ever even hear the aggression in that statement? Maybe that's why words aren't enough. And they're not said the right way. But sometimes words are not enough. And we learn that from Solomon. Number three, we also learn from this text that some problems are made worse by selfishness. In fact, I would change that word some probably to say all. All problems are made worse by selfishness. Did you notice her response in verse 3? I called them flimsy excuses. There's some suggestion maybe there's a little more to this than just uh, the, the, the surface response in verse 3. I, I've, I've taken off my dress. How can I put them on again? Uh, I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? Perhaps she has prepared herself to be with him so that he would come home. And when he didn't come home, she just went ahead and got ready for bed, and she's not going to undo all of that. That may be what she's telling him. That may be the point. But it does seem flimsy, doesn't it? You don't want to get your feet dirty to get up and open the door, so I have to sleep outside? That's, that seems to be an overreaction, right? It seems to be frustration or, or anticipation and disappointment that led to frustration, to now she's taking it out on him. Now, I wouldn't impose that, except for how quickly she regrets it, right? Something about this response isn't right in the situation. Something about the response didn't need to happen this way. What may seem like self-preservation and self-protection just becomes selfishness in general in this text. Yeah, I was reading this week, and I read a story about a husband and wife who, who stopped speaking to one another, hadn't spoken to one another for a number of days, but he had an early flight. And so he decided he's not going to break this, this, this talking fast. So before he goes to bed, he leaves her a note. And he says, I have an early flight in the morning. I need to get up at 5 o'clock, or wake me up at 5 o'clock. He leaves that note beside her bed. Then he goes to sleep. He rolls over and checks his alarm clock, and it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Beside his alarm clock, there's a note that says it's 5 o'clock. Wake up. <laughs> the frustration 
and letting that build and letting that spill over into a selfishness. Now, I'm sure he learned his lesson. And maybe there are ladies here saying, see, I'm not going to argue that. It's a fictitious story anyway, I hope. I hope it never happened. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that love is patient and kind and not jealous. It does not brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecoming. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Sometimes we want to make the point quickly that 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. It's about church relationships, and it is. But if love ever applied to any relationship on the face of the earth, it applies to marriage. If I'm going to treat anyone the way the Bible says to treat one out of love, I would treat my spouse. Sometimes we're more selfish in our homes than any other place on the planet. And shame on us for that. Because it should be the place where the benefit of the doubt is given more. The extra mile is gone more often. Turning the other cheek happens regularly. Not my way or I'll lock the door. So how do I fix it? Well, the New Testament's full of those pieces of advice. Maybe one of the most profound and succinct is found in Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Let nothing be done with selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on the out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Imagine if every marriage did that. You wouldn't have the nightmare. You wouldn't have the scene of Song of Solomon chapter 5. Sometimes we need to realize that problems are made worse by selfishness. Number four. We also learn from this text that some problems are simply a matter of timing. That to me stood out more than anything else in this text as I read it. Okay, he comes home and she's frustrated. And he tries everything that he can to get her to let him in. All that he knows to do and she won't. He even tries forcibly with his own hand to, to open the latch and doesn't work. So he turns away, maybe storming off mad, maybe angry, I don't know. But I know immediately she regrets it. She gets up and she goes to the door and he's not there. Moments apart, they both wanted the same thing. Moments apart, they wanted to get along. Moments apart, they wanted to be right with one another. But their moments were separated by just a small time of frustration and anger and fighting. You ever felt that in a relationship? Most relationships don't end because one person stands up one day and says, You know what? I care nothing about you at all anymore. And I don't want to be your friend. I don't want to be your spouse. I, I don't want to be your, your neighbor, whatever. Usually it's, it's timing. One person tries and there's nothing given back in return, so that person stops trying. And then the other person begins to try because they feel bad about that and understand the need for that relationship. The other person doesn't give. And sometimes that timing never works out. What a shame it is that we lose those relationships. One writer suggested there are two major shifts in her thought, in verses four and five, verses four through six, number one, she reconsiders. She says her feelings have changed. Based on what he has done, on what he has said, on, on, on her reaction to it, she says, I, I rethought that. And then I arose to let him in. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the two sons, and the first son said, I won't go. But later he regretted it and went. That's, that's what's being described here with Solomon's bride. She regretted it and went. She repented. She changed. She was going to do something different, only to find out that for that moment and that night, it was too late. Problem was, Solomon had already left. Remember those four things that, that a, a woman needs? Let's consider for just a moment, very briefly, the, the four that a man needs, because that's what Solomon needed this night. Number one, man needs 
her to be his champion, his best friend. Number two, to be his cheerleader. That is, to verbalize and continually verbalize her appreciation for what he has done. Number three, his companion. His companion. Number four, his compliment. Now, if she were one of those four things that night in the, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of the frustration, maybe we wouldn't have the scene of seven and eight. That's what Solomon needed. He needed a companion, a cheerleader, a champion, compliment for her to be that. Number four, number five, rather, and finally, we also learn from this text that some problems get worse before they get better. Some problems get worse before they get better. Seven is the difficulty. The other passages are the, the, a little bit difficult for one reason or another, not to understand but to relay in, 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 in a sermon form. But verse seven is difficult. Verse seven is the reason I believe this is, this is a, a poem and not an actual account because it just doesn't make any sense. She leaves out to go find him, and the watchmen of the city strike her and wound her and take away her, her cloak, her shawl. Now, by the way, in chapter 3, when she goes out to find him, she encounters the same watchmen. And they converse with her. This time, they're upset with her. You know, when we try to work out problems and genuinely get down to the root of why the door's locked, why Solomon was late coming home, why her reaction was selfish, why he wasn't there when she got up. When we start trying to under, uh, peel back the layers and get to the, to the real reason for all of that and understand it, you know what we usually root out? We usually root out a lot of other things that need to be dealt with. A lot of other conversations need to be had. And I'm not sure if they're not represented in these watchmen in verse 7. She goes out to find him, but there's trouble in the way. There's barriers in the way. There's someone stopping her. There's something stopping her. She she can't just say, I'm sorry. She can't just open the door now. She's got to do more because what she's done and what she's decided and the way she's acted has caused great pain. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. But I believe verse 8 ends on a great note. You tell him when you find him, I'm lovesick. You tell him I'm sorry. Tell him I shouldn't have acted that way, that I should have opened the door, that I shouldn't have gotten frustrated, that I, I, I love his pet name for me and the way that he appeals to me, and I want to be his champion and his, his, his compliment. Before that can happen and before he can know that, things are going to get worse for her. Now, I believe those five things are, are clear in the text. But this is our, our last lesson from the Song of Solomon, maybe ever, probably not, but at least for a good little while. We have to understand that if God chose this of all of Solomon's 100 or 1,005 songs, for him to include this one, and then later in the canon to say, my relationship with you in the church is going to be like a bride and her husband, I believe God wanted us to see something from this book about us. I believe it's a love story. I believe that it's real. I believe that it, that it deals with very intimate moments in life, that it's not merely an allegory. But every book of the Old Testament points to Jesus, doesn't it? And this one, I believe, points to the relationship that we have with Jesus and with one another in the church. 
So here's what I want to do as, as we close, and this, this will not be long. In fact, I just want you to think about something for a moment. You ever, you ever get frustrated and put out and discouraged when it comes to your place in the Lord's church? You ever just lock the door and decide, I'm going to bed tonight? Someone comes knocking and wants you to open it up. And I'm, I'm through. I'm done. And you regret it. You feel bad about it. And then things maybe get worse before they get better. I believe there's a picture in this broken relationship of what happens in our hearts when we struggle in the Lord's church to appreciate it for its beauty and simplicity. When it becomes just a place we go and not who we are. When we're content, when we're content to commit one hour a week and nothing more. When we're willing to turn away overtures to, to be involved and to, to invest and, and to buy in and, and to love and to appreciate and to forgive and to follow. Now, I believe that in our homes, we've all been in some place like the bride was in Song of Solomon 5, where we genuinely felt like our expectations were not met and we were justified in shutting the door and going to bed. Especially in 2020. Well, let's just be honest and frank and open. If I'm going to have to sit a few apart and I'm going to have to wear a mask, if they're going to put my kids from, from kindergarten to fifth grade in one class and, 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 and we're going to have to not have our three classes and, 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 if, and if we can't have our regular activities, I'm shutting the door and I'm going to bed. And I'm done. I believe, friends, there's a day we're going to regret if we give up on the Lord's church. I believe we are. And the beauty of it is he gives us the restoration of chapter 6. It wasn't long before it was right. My challenge to you this morning is to evaluate your marriage, yes. That's been the point of this month. But in the wake of that, evaluate your relationship with the Lord and his church. And open the door. Continue our work. Be, be, be a people committed to righteousness, not just in this building, but when this building is open to be here and to be with God's people and to share with them and to rejoice with them and to study with them and to love them. Just like we were doing in February. Will you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we're, we're humbled that you love us, that you pursue us and that you don't give up on us. Father, we pray that we would return that same love. As Cliff prayed about earlier, that we might with all of our heart continue or again rededicate our every being to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not a Christian, We'd love to study with you about becoming one and being a part of this unique body 
of believers here and the church universal. If you are a Christian and not living up to your commitment in that marriage to Christ, make it right. Talk with him about that and repent of that. If we can assist you in that, if we can help you, if it's a public nature and you just need the prayers of the church, whatever it is, our desire is that we would all be right with him, right before him, work together to a place where there's no more of the separation and the struggle. But until that time, that will remain faith. If you have a need, we ask you to come while we stand and sing.